talk about Esther's name today. No. Today's class is primarily about Haman. But there's some important lessons we can learn from Haman. <laughs> primarily what not to do. <laughs> Today's class is very much a continuation of of the previous class, the last <coughs> class that we left off with on the Megillah, we're in chapter 6. And just to refresh everybody's memory, Achashverosh is having a bad night. <laughs> he keeps waking up. He's had nightmares. And in his nightmare, he sees Haman coming after him with a sword. Haman wants to kill him. So Achashverosh is very much disquieted. He's very unhappy. And, and Haman has no clue of any of this. He's coming to tell Achashverosh about this gallows that he's built. And I just want to take a moment to focus on the gallows and Haman's intention, and then we'll go straight into to Haman. Today's going to be a lot about Haman. So Haman says he's going to go to Achashverosh right now, and he's going to take care of things. He's come, chapter 6, verse 4. He has come, Lamer Lamelech, to tell the king, Litlois es Mordechai al Ha'etz Asher He's a man with a mission. He wants to tell the king that we should hang Mordechai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Now, Haman is a very powerful man, but he's still not the king, and he can't just do as he pleases cannot simply execute people at will. He needs the king's permission to kill somebody. So he's planning to come get permission. And it's once he wants to hang Mordechai. But it says, if you look at the words literally, it says, Al asher on, the, on the gallows that he prepared for him. So the Mender says, Litlis es Mordechai ala asher says the, the Medrash, Tono loy heichen. We learned that actually lo, Lamed Vav, means for him. He actually prepared it for himself. And without realizing it, of course. And in fact, he did it so well, there was enough room on this very tall gallows for Haman to be hung, as well as all of his sons. Haman and his ten sons were hung in the same gallows. There was like, like a string of fish, it says. Including Vayazasa, the little guy. There's room for him too. So, the all of Nemar about this, the says, it's David Amal says in the book of Tillam, chapter or Psalm 7, the loy heichen klimovis. He prepared the instruments of death for himself. That this is berkara v'yachpadehu v'yipo b'shachasifo. He dug the pit, he would fall into his own pit. So it's important for us to know that Haman was preparing this gallows for Mordechai, and that's why he came now to Achashverosh, but actually he is going to succeed in hanging himself. And that's how the gallows were made to begin with. It fit Haman perfectly. The, the Gemara in Meseches Megillah on Daf Tezayin Omed Aleph also brings down a similar thing. Almost uh, word for word it says, Heichen loy, says the Gemara, Tana, we learned that this idea of loy is superfluous. It didn't belong there. So what is loy? Loy heichen, he prepared it for himself. It's a little bit shorter, that's what the Gemara says. Now the Turi Evan asks a question. 
we know that Haman gets hung on this gallows. What exactly are we adding by say, by saying that that he prepared it for himself? Obviously, that's what happened in the end. This is like open scripture. You don't need a Gemara. You don't need a Medrash. That's, that says it clearly. What's the novelty and the, the, the Megillah having to add the word that he prepared for him and in the end it'll be for him. We know it'll be for him in the end. Read a couple of verses later. You'll see it'll be for him. Why bother adding that in? So the Turievan says that the Megillah, the Balha Megillah really is Esther, wants us to know that Min HaShamayim from heaven was already decreed on Haman. The decree was already released. So when he was building that gallows, already everything had turned around. Now the miracles were happening. It says, Balai Lahu, as we learned in the previous classes, on that night, all of a sudden, Now, God, so to speak, woke up. God can't sleep. And the salvation of the Jewish people is already in motion. Achashverosh can't sleep, and Haman's building himself a gallows. So that's the time that the decree already has been set forth. The Jewish people are now already saved. From heaven, the decree has already been rescinded, and the, the salvation of the Jewish people, the wheels have already set into motion. And that's what we hear even now, Asher Heichen Loi, that in the evening, when he was preparing the gallows, he was already preparing it for himself. So, and this fits very nicely, very snugly with the Medrash. The Medrash also says, we'll read this a little bit later on, the Medrash tells us in the ninth chapter of, Mesechas, of, of um, the Megillah, the Medrash says that when Haman was building the gallows, he measured himself on it. He says, let me see if this will fit Mardachai good. He tried the gallows, he tried the noose on it. He says, ah, oh, it's a perfect fit. It's going to be perfect. But without knowing, he was actually auditioning for the position himself. But he auditioned so well, he didn't know. And it says that there was a basco, a heavenly voice that rang out. You have to be tuned in to hear these voices, like radar, like radio waves. You don't necessarily hear them. But the heavenly voice rang out and said, No, it looks good on you, Haman. Nice. <laughs> this is good for you. This gallows has been waiting for you for a very long time. In fact, this wood was from the time of the beginning of creation waiting so that you might be hung on it. The Gerer Rebbe, the Imri Emes, once said an interesting thing. He said that Haman was planning to tell Ahasuerus, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to hang myself. As long as Mordechai is alive, I can't live. I can't function. I want to be your prime minister. I want to run this country. But I, I'm, I'm driven to the limits of lunacy. I'm going to kill myself. I have this gallows. I'm going to hang myself. And he was sure the king would say, Haman, don't hang yourself. Just hang Mordechai already. And that's how he planned to get the king to say it. He wouldn't even have to say it. This is an ingenious way of getting, it would be the king's idea, not his idea. Not that he would say, your highness, can I please hang somebody? Now, how would that sound? Instead, Hummel would just say, I, I quit. And then he would say, no, no, don't quit, don't quit. Let him quit. But it didn't work out that way. Ahasuerus said, really? You wanted to hang yourself? No problem. Let Haman hang. And he does hang in the end, but not so fast, but that's what happens in the end. So this is a little bit of a, a, a preface of, Haman, Haman's coming along. He's got his ideas. He, he knows what he wants. And, whoops. Caught. Okay. We'll finish with the medicine now. So, the king hears. He hears somebody in the, in the courtyard. Who's there? Chapter five, 6, verse 5. The chamberlains of the king say, Hine, Haman, I made bechatzer. Haman is here. Haman is in the courtyard. And the king said, Yavai. Haman is here? <laughs> Let Haman come. 
And the verse right away says, Vayavai Haman, and Haman came. So it says, Yavai and Vayavai Haman. So about this, the commentaries right away say, this is a very unusual kind of flow. The cadence is unusual. Vayemir HaMelech, Yavai, Vayavai. How did this unfold? Or like, so to speak, like one thing seems to like suddenly bleed into the next. So the, the Dunab Shada says like this. Haman actually could hear what was going on. He heard the king say, Mi bachatzer. And they responded and they said, Haman, Haman is in the chatzer. So Haman waited to hear what the king would say. And the king said, Yavai, then let him come. Now the protocol is, you wait for an invitation. The chamberlains come and they say, you may now enter the royal chamber. But Haman didn't do that. Haman got carried away. As soon as he heard the king say, Yavai, right away, Vayavai Haman. And here he jumped the gun. And here Haman behaved totally inappropriately. He, had, he dropped the royal etiquette. And he didn't behave in the respectful way. And Achashverosh now, immediately, this was, he was infuriated further. Haman doesn't even respect me. Now Haman is doing away with the necessary etiquette. He just barges in. Now, you would look, you want, without thinking, you don't realize that. Haman didn't think he's barging in. The king said he should come. But nobody gave the command. He was eavesdropping, which is already not nice. And then he didn't wait for the etiquette to unfold, and boom, he barged in. And so, this is, at this point, says Rabbeinu Avram, he says, this is where the Malachim already prepared everything to start to go in Haman's disfavor. Everything is now going to go in the opposite way. The king saw that he came in without permission. And so the etiquette is that you don't just speak to a king. You never just speak. You have to wait. The king speaks first. This is, um, where did I see this? And so I wanted the Mepharshim to talk about this. It talks about this idea that when you come to the king, you don't just speak. I hear this. Um, you, when you come to a king, you have to get permission to speak. You don't just walk in. So, so the Peter says, he came, waited for the king to say, Hello, Haman, how can I help you? And Haman was planning to talk to him about the gallows. But the king saw the way Haman barged in. He said, I'm not going to say hello to him. I don't care what he's coming here for. I have my issues to deal with first. What's Ahasuerus' issue? He's suspicious of Haman, just as Esther had set things up. He's the only one at the meal. Everybody looks at him different. The king is getting really nervous. Maybe Haman's after me. Maybe he wants my crown. Maybe he wants my wife. And now he barges in. I bet you he's coming to kill me. And he had this dream that Haman's over him with a sword. So he fi- figures, I better, I better test the waters. I got to find out exactly what's going on here. Because especially as he had this, he was still under the impression of that nightmare. So he figures, now I'm going to test Haman to see what Haman's thinking about himself. And the king purposefully will speak in vague language. But the reason, says the Monas Alevi, the Alkabats, that he speaks in vague language is because this is a test. He didn't need to ask Haman what to do for, for Mordechai. He asked the chamberlains what was done. And what did they say? Nothing was done. Okay, nothing was done. The king will decide. The king needs to ask Haman how to reward somebody who saved his life. But the reason that the king is asking Haman is because he wants Haman to think it's about himself. 
and then he's going to hear already where Haman's head is. Once he'll hear, once he listens to what Haman says, and then he'll see if Haman indeed is after his crown. So that's why the king doesn't say, the king immediately begins to speak to him. And he says, What in Beish? Why don't you say, What should we do with Mordechai? What should we do with a person who saved my life? But then he'll know right away he was talking about Mordechai. So the king, who's actually quite brilliant, he's very cunning, Achashverosh, he knows that, that Haman doesn't like Mordechai. He knows that if he mentions Mordechai's name, Haman will diminish whatever good it is and try to get, him, get away with nothing. And he also knows, or is suspicious, that Haman is after him. So he figures this is a perfect opportunity. I'm going to get Haman to think I'm talking about him. Let me hear what he wants himself. And then I'll get him to do with the Mordechai, which is the perfect opportunity to bring him down. He's playing these uh, adversaries against each other. This is poli 101. He's <laughs> basic political science in trying to keep everybody in check. He says, I know exactly how to keep Haman in check by making him do whatever he says to his worst enemy, to the guy he hates. And in this way, um, I've, I've solved two problems with one, one fell swoop. I, I reward Mordechai and I bring Haman down too. It's quite, it's quite brilliant. And he, this is the middle of a, his groggy state. He's still, the guy's on his toes. Crazy as a fox, but the guy's a genius. And so he says, okay, Haman, I want to ask you a question. Suppose there was this person. Malas says, Be'ish. An Ish. Who is the Ish? Let's not talk about who the Ish is. Now, in general, the Turk of Ish means somebody who is very honorable. That's so Haman right away starts thinking, <laughs> who's honorable. The Pekid Derbelezer says, I'm an Ish. I'm a man. It says, Ish Moshe. Ish is like, like a man, like a very man of prominence. So he says, we speak here of a man of great prominence. And Haman thinks, of course, I am of great prominence. He must be talking about me. He was mad about himself. Everything was about him, right? He was just this the totally subsumed in his own self-importance. Asher HaMelech which the king wants his honor. Haman said in his heart, <laughs> Who would the king want to honor more than me? For sure, it's all about me. It's got to be about me. And this is exactly what the king was trying to do. Now, the Malbum says something very interesting. You notice, so when Achashverosh was initially looking to do something for Mordechai, what did he ask? He asked his chamberlains, and he said, Manasa, what was done? Go back to verse 3. Yikar Ugedula. Greatness and honor. And we talked about this in our previous class, the various interpretations of greatness and honor. But the simple thing we came down to was that greatness means either a, a big position or a lot of money, and Yikar is honor. So here the question was, should Mordechai get some kind of promotion? Was he promoted? No, he's still a common parliamentarian. Did he get any, did he didn't get a job? Did he get any honor? Did he get a citation? Did he get, was he given some kind of uh, medal? The royal presidential uh, monarchical medal? For, for, no, nothing. No Gedula, no Yikar. And now he's asking Haman, so he should ask Haman the same way. He was worried about Gedula and Yikar. He should ask Haman, so, in his greatness and in his honor. But then, then, Achashverosh reason, Haman would know it's not about him. Because the terminology is that Haman was already raised. You couldn't get a higher promotion. The next promotion was king himself. And Achashverosh was not planning to abdicate. So 
he cannot ask uh, Mordechai, what should the king do for somebody who needs a promotion? They'll know it's not him. And then it's pointless. He needs him to think it's about him. So he drops the gedula. It's really clever. And he says, honor. Because he knew Haman. Haman was a person for whom any honor was never enough. He's a person who only wanted honor. Glory. For him, it was all about glory and honor. So knowing Haman's personality, he said, what should happen to the person, the prominent person, the important person, that the king wants to be honored? What should happen to that person? And Haman thinks to himself, who could that be? It's got to be me. Couldn't be anybody else. Now, of course, you might ask the question, how do you know what Haman's thinking? How could anybody know what Haman's thinking? So the Ibn Ezra says, well, we know that the Megillah is a book of Scripture. So it's written with the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKadosh, which is brought down in other places that Esther wrote the book. And Esther wrote it with Nevoah. So it has to be with Nevoah. Because, as Ibn Ezra says, Mi talum slave. Who else could know what's in the depths of the heart? Only, only with prophecy you know what Hamel was thinking. It's Hashem that's gilo soida Like it says that Hashem reveals the secrets to His servants, the prophets. However, Ibn Ezra says there is another possibility here. It's possible, ki Just like Ahasuerus said, let me, I know what he's going to be thinking. So you could see from what he was saying, it must, Ahasuerus must have hit the nail on the head. And probably that's what he was thinking. It's only logical. Because he went all out. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't like, there was no limitation of what he wanted. He wanted all the honor. He must have been thinking about himself. Or, Ibn Ezra says, there's another possibility. Maybe Haman actually told somebody. Maybe Haman related the story as he walked out. And I was thinking to myself, who would the king want to honor more than me? And I create this amazing honor that I could have enjoyed. And what does the king tell me? Now run and do it to Mordechai. Could you imagine? Maybe he told his wife. Maybe he told one of his children. What's the problem? So maybe he told somebody. And the Ibn Ezra says, because he told somebody, so that's how the Megillah knows what he was thinking. Okay, so anyway, we have three, three possibilities here. Either this is because it's prophecy, or because it's a no-brainer, or because he actually told somebody, or maybe all of the above. But bottom line is, we can be absolutely certain this is what Haman was thinking. The king wanted to try and see what he would think, and the king got it right. The king, that's exactly what Haman was thinking. So now, Haman's, Haman's uh, imagining in his mind how he's going to get all this honor. But also, Haman has to think very carefully now. What if I'm wrong? What if there's a 1% chance that the king doesn't mean me? So he has to create the kind of honor, which is, if it's for Haman, going to work for Haman. But if it's for somebody else, it can't get in Haman's way. So Haman, on the spot, who's no fool himself, he figures something out, which if it's for him, it'll be a huge honor. And he'll be able to, so to speak, move forward on the inertia of the honorable moment, like it'll stay with him. But if it's somebody else, it'll be a temporary thing. See, Haman could have said, a person that the king wants to honor, promote him. Make him a governor. Make him a, a, a very important person. But then Haman says, I just created myself a problem. If it wasn't, and anyway, he says, it's talking about me. He's talking about me. I can't say promote him. I can't get promoted. If I ask him for any bigger promotion, I'm basically asking for his seat. So I have to create a situation where it's no likelihood it's me. I can't have a promotion, but we'll do something which is an amazing splash. And you know what? After the splash is over, if it's somebody else, shine, it'll fade into the background. 
But if it's me, nobody will forget what happened to me. Nobody will forget what the king did for me. And I will be able to continue to enjoy the benefits of this moment. And this is what Haman is all thinking about his mind. The Manas Alevi says, this is what Haman's mind is working over time and trying to figure out how he's going to be able to benefit the most from this. Now, of course, Haman, uh, Achashverosh knew that Haman wouldn't ask for money because Haman had more money than he could spend in a lifetime. And that's why he didn't say anything about Gedula because Gedula could be interpreted as a position or as money. Maybe you should get a prize. So another million dollars won't make a difference. Another $10 million won't make a difference. Haman was, did not lack for money. That wasn't his issue. Haman wanted honor. That's all he wanted. So Haman now, and it's true, Haman, you see, does want honor. He doesn't suggest he should get a prize. He says, what's the honor that can be passing and fading for somebody else, but permanent for me? Because I'm the prime minister. And so he comes up with this idea of an incredible honor, something remarkable, Something which, if people will see him receiving this honor, they will, they will literally look at him as the king. He'll be just a, a, an inch away from the, from the throne. But it's somebody else, it's, it's, it doesn't really fit. So it's not a natural fit. So they were there for a day, you know, king for a day. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, it, 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 we won't get in his way. He'll still be the prime minister tomorrow. And this is what Haman's thinking. And he comes up with the idea. And so he says, Vayoymer Haman el Hamelech. Haman says to the king, Ish, Asher the person that the king wants to honor. Oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what should happen to that person. Now, before I go further, I just want to tell you that Haman should have been smart enough to know that suggesting that wearing the king's clothing and wearing the king's crown, especially he was talking about himself, was a dumb thing to say. Because he knew that Achashverosh was a guy who was full of inhibitions and full of fears and full of anxieties. And he wasn't really comfortable with himself. And he was always looking over his shoulder. He knew, he knew Achashverosh. Nobody knew Achashverosh better than Haman knew Achashverosh. He worked for the man. So he knew that he had this very, very thin ego, veneer of an ego. And he knew that if anybody tries to get in his way, Achashverosh flips out. I mean, this is the guy who killed his wife because she wouldn't come prancing around. He knows who he's dealing with. So that's a really dumb thing to say. You want to wear his clothes? You want to wear his crown? Do you, you, you know that that might not go over very well. And he's looking for more power as well. Looking for power, so. But he couldn't really get more power because the only more power he could have is be the king. Fine, but, but he wanted, he, he, he's going to come up with, with something which he knows could set Achashverosh off. And he will notice it. You'll see that it does set Achashverosh off. He doesn't even know the background. He doesn't know that Esther's strategy worked like a charm. He doesn't know that the king is full of suspicions and is, is right now double and, and, and triple checking himself and, and thinking to himself, hmm, this guy is up to something no good. He doesn't even know he's he put up the test, but he should have been smarter. Come on, this is the guy who climbed the, the, the ladders of power. How many dead bodies did he climb over? He couldn't be smart. Certain things you don't mess around with. So the Medr says about this a very interesting thing. Medrash says that you should know, and here we go back to our Medrash, that from this we can see that the wicked have no control over their emotions. Their emotions control them. But tzaddikim is the other way around. Tzaddikim control their emotions. And that's why we see a number of times throughout the Chumash that wicked people 
are saying things to their heart. But saying things to the heart really means they're listening to the heart. It's as if that they're telling their heart, but really the heart is telling them. It's never a good idea to let emotions govern. It's always a good idea to let your mind control your heart. But here he was following his heart, and he had no choice. Where do we see this? It says, Vayoymer Esav Beliboy. Esav said to his heart. Esav was totally in control, in, in, uh, under the sway of his emotions. Where David HaMelech says, Omar Novel Beliboy, the degenerate, the disgusting one, said in his heart, Vayoymer Yeravam. Yeravam was one of the greatest sinners of all time. And the Medrash says, finally, Vayoymer Homan Beliboy. So it's the insatiable desires and lusts and craving of the heart that gets the better of the person. The best metaphor I could think of is an addict. The addict is addicted to a substance or bad behavior. And in the end, many of these addicts will lose everything in the pursuit of their addiction. They will lose their family. They will lose their career. They will lose their friends. They will lose anything and everything. And sometimes they hit rock bottom and not everybody bounces back. Sometimes rock bottom, there's no coming back from rock bottom. It's a very sad thing. And that's because the, the addict himself knows he doesn't want to do this. He's, he feels miserable about himself. He's not happy about it. Can't help himself. Can't help himself. His emotions get the better of him, and he just gets overwhelmed with his lusts and cravings and can't control himself. I mean, Bill Clinton was such a stupid guy. He ruined everything. He, he was on top of the world. How stupid was he? What did he gain out of his shenanigans? His besmirch forever. His, forever his legacy will be linked to, to his fool, foolish activities. What was he thinking? The answer is he wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking. He has allowed his lust to get the better of him. And his controlled, his heart controlled him. But tzaddikim is the other way around. Tzaddikim are not people without a heart. They have a heart. They have passion. They have feelings. They have fervor. But it's intelligent. It's thought through. And so, tzaddikim libam bideshusam. The tzaddikim, they control their hearts. Where do we see this? We see this first and foremost with Chana, the mother of the great prophet Shmuel. That it's Chana is davening like the forerunner of the Marunde Amidash Monesre. It says, Vihimedaberes al liba. She's al liba. Not el liba, but al liba. She's over her heart. By, by Homan, it says, el liba. He's talking to his heart, but his heart is controlling him. With Chana, it says Al Liba. Daniel, it says, Vayasan Daniel Al Libai. Or we even have Vayemir David El Libai, but it means David is in control. And this is Vidaymin Labayran. The Medrash says, in this way, Tzadikim are metaphorically likened to their Creator, that it says, Vayemir Hashem El Libai. This is with the time before the Mabel, when God was, so to speak, saddened by the state of affairs in the world, and he decided that the world would be destroyed. So again, the emphasis here is that Haman, right now, did some very foolish things. He allowed his delusions to get, to get the better of him, his delusions of grandeur. And as he was, his collusion of who he's going to control and how he's going to control, and it was all about Haman. And because it was all about Haman, he got so trapped in his in his delusions, that he ended up setting a snare that entrapped him and brought him down entirely. But he should have been smarter. And Achashverosh set this. Achashverosh knows this. Achashverosh sets the trap and he falls hook, line, and sinker. 
So now that you understand the background, you'll appreciate what he says. A king, the person wants to honor, says Haman. I'll tell you. Let them bring the royal garments. But not just any royal garments. Royal garments that the king wore. And let it be a horse that the king has rode upon it. Upon which the crown was placed. Now this is vague. It doesn't, he doesn't say, He doesn't say, bring the crown. He says, the garments, bring the garments, the king wore. The horse, bring the horse, the king rode. And the crown is placed on his head. It's kind of vague. Because even though he was trapped in his delusions, and even though his heart had gotten the better of him, and even though Hummel was convinced us about him, he still knew that he's playing with fire. And if he says, put the crown on my head, he knew that Achashverosh might fly off the handle and he would suffer the fate of Vashti. So he's testing the waters. He really wants to wear that crown. He wants everybody to see him wearing the crown. And people look at him as the king. That's what he really wants. But he's just a little bit careful. Just gives you an idea of, he should have been a lot more careful, but even in the state where he's being controlled by his emotions and his heart, he uses vague terminology. The, the, the crown. And Rashi says this. Rashi says, Later, when in verse 9, first he says, bring, bring it. But then, in verse 9, it doesn't say, he says, give it. He says, He'll give the garment and the horse into the jurisdiction of a very, very prominent minister, somebody very important. One of the great uh, ministers or princes, they'll be Saish and they'll dress the person. But he never mentions the crown. He 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 alludes to it in verse eight, and in verse nine he drops it from his repertoire altogether. So Rashi says, "Esa keser lehiska." In verse nine, when he actually first he talks about the idea, and then he describes how it'll be done, but he doesn't mention the crown. Why? He saw the king's eyes flash. He realized he went too far. He could see by Ahasuerus' facial expression that the moment he mentioned the crown, that his crown, that he heard that the, that the crown should be placed on another person's head, he saw Ahasuerus couldn't control his body language. Now Ahasuerus actually was trying to be kind of like, you know, ambivalent here and he's just testing him and he had pretty good control of himself, but he couldn't control this and his face told the story. Haman read, he looked one look at that face Haman quickly dropped the crown from the repertoire, then mentioned the crown again. So the Ibn Ezra brings down the words of Rashi, and he says, Yeshaimrim, and this is of course Rashi and many others. He could saw the king became infuriated when he mentioned the crown. Because of Kwaid Amalchus. If you wear the crown, that's it. You've diminished and demeaned the power of the monarchy. So therefore he says, You'll give the garment. But Ibn Ezra says, I, I don't agree. Hanochem be'enai, I believe, he says, that to begin with, Haman was never that dumb. He never asked to put the crown on his head. That would be fatal. He couldn't have done that. What did he ask for? He meant the horse that was crowned. And it seems that in Persia, that when the horse was, when the king would ride the horse, the horse would be decorated with a little crown as if this is the royal horse. So he says, the, the horse, the horse that wears the royal crown. The horse that wears the crown. So a horse that wears the crown, 
He didn't have to say, give the clothes, because he already said. Everybody knows this, this is the horse. Now, many Mepharshim, uh, including the Vilna Goen and, and um, uh, Manas Alevi, the Akabats, the, the uh, Vav Megamazia, they all talk about this, 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 which article of clothing was it? This king had multiple wardrobes. And they say, this was the clothing that the king wore on the day of his coronation. It's like, I think you can go to museums and see this. I think that the gown that, that uh, Queen Elizabeth wore on the day of her coronation is in the Tower of London now. You can go in and actually see it. It's a, it's a historical thing, right? Or you talk about the, the carriage that was used when Diana got married. I think it's in, in a museum now. That's the proverbial carriage. So the, this horse was like a special horse. It wasn't necessarily used all the time. But everybody knew this was the horse that the king had ridden upon on the day of his coronation. And this was the special clothing he wore. This was like the wedding gown, the tux that he wore on the day of his being coronated as king. So he said, that's the clothing I want. Not me. The person. The person should wear the clothes in which the king was coronated as king. So it won't just be any ordinary clothes. It'll be the clothes that the king wore when he became king. And everybody will recognize this because they all attended the coronation. And they'll see the king riding that horse. And as Ibn Ezra says, they'll see him with a horse with a crown on it. The horse that he rode on the day of coronation. And, and this will be unbelievable, he says. And they'll take him and, and this person will have that crown, and, I mean, that, that horse with the crown, or, or will have that, those garments and he'll have, he'll have the, 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 be dressed head to toe, sans the crown, of course, according to Rashi, because you know, he realized the Ahasuerus couldn't stomach that. And he'll be dressed virtually to the hilt, everything but the crown, and, and he'll be riding that horse, and, and everybody will see who the king really honors. Which as we move forward now, you'll give the garment and the horse into the hands of Sari HaMelech, one of the very, very high-ranking officers, they themselves will dress the person that the king wants to be honored. They will ride him. They will put him atop the horse. And they will lead him through, uh, through in the city square. They will call before him. This is what happens to the person that the king wishes to honor. So this is going to be a, a heavy-duty event. Now, Haman wants, wants to be seen by the people virtually as the king. Okay, it didn't work with the crown. He didn't get the crown. He, he got that. But other than the crown, he is going to be wearing everything that the king wore on the day of his coronation. And he, he's going to be hearing the people proclaim, this is how the king wants to honor somebody. So the obvious question is, why would you throw in the people proclaiming? If he wants everybody to think he's the king, he should just show up wearing the clothes and be led to the city wearing the clothes. What do you need the crier for? Now what's interesting to note is that it says, that he says, it says, doesn't say it's singular. It says, V'nosan halvush al-yad ish, that's singular, from amongst the ministers. V'hilbishu esa ish, they'll dress the person. And then it says, V'yekivu, I'll ride him on the horse. V'karu lefanov, and they will call out before him, So the way the Mepharshim see it, what, what he wanted was that there should be people calling out, many people calling out. This is what gets done. But in this way, Haman had like a two-pronged approach. Number one, it would mitigate the notion that he wanted to be king. Because after all, 
ministers are calling out. This is what happens to the person who the king wants to honor. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as if he wants to be the king. But on the other hand, having all these ministers run around before him, making fools out of themselves, and speaking how great he is, would further cement, cement his own position. So that's what, why Haman came up with this idea. Now this Levush, which is called the Levush Malchus, this was, so to speak, the overgarment. You're talking about that which is visible to everybody. And everybody will see this is what the king wore, this is the clothes of the inauguration, of the coronation, and that's what's called Levush Malchus. It's the royalty, the clothes of royalty, the clothes that make royalty, the clothes that created, through which royalty were created. That's the day the king became king. And of course, Haman doesn't mention the, the, the crown again at this point after seeing Ahasuerus' response. Now, the, the um, Manus HaLevi says something amazing over here. He says, Haman had a secondary intention here. Haman was thinking to himself, uh, I don't know if I'm going to get to ask my question. Ahasuerus doesn't seem to be in the mood of requests. I want to kill Mordechai. So he says in Persia, in ancient Persia, the custom was that if somebody, this was law, would wear the clothes that the king wore at his inauguration, he didn't have to ask the king. He could, whatever he said was, was law. And I was wearing those clothes that the king was coronated in, whatever you would say would be law. And the king didn't have to be asked. Nobody had to double check. It didn't require approbation. So Haman thought to himself, forget the crown. As long as I'm wearing those clothes and I'm on that horse, I can order that Mordecai be killed. And I don't have to bother asking the king now because I already said he should be honored. And once the king honored me, once he, re- he dressed me up that way, now there's no more questions. So you're dealing here with like two brilliant people. But Haman's delusion has blinded him. So his, his mind is working. This is no fool. He's very, very wily, very clever, very strategic. And yet behaving so stupidly. And that becomes the question. How could a guy who's so smart, so calculated, make such an incredible blunder? And the answer is, because his delusions. Because the wicked are under the control of their emotions. And Haman here, blinded by hate, blinded by power, blinded by lust, blinded by the honor. He just, he was blinded. And so, he was blindsided by himself. Now, Ahasuerus is listening to all this. And what do you think Ahasuerus is thinking? I can't believe this. He really does want my job. He wants to wear my clothes. He wants to ride my horse. He even asked for my crown. I, he pulled back later. But he even wants to ride my, wear my crown. And Ahasuerus thinks to himself, I can't believe it. It's exactly as I thought. So without realizing it, Haman has just dug himself his own grave. Ahasuerus wanted to see, is he thinking about me? Does he have designs on me? And here it gets even more interesting. The Mamluyas brings down from the Drashim that Haman, Ahasuerus knew very well that there is this showdown between Mordechai and between Haman. He knew it was a showdown. He knew, that I, he knew that Haman hated Mordechai. There was no question about that. So he didn't want Haman to start telling Ahasuerus what to do for Mordechai because he knew that Haman would just dismiss it all out of hand. But he thought to himself, Mordechai saved my life. And I think this guy has designs on my life. And I bet you getting rid of Mordechai would be right up his alley because Mordechai was the last firewall who stood before the last people who wanted to kill me. I bet you if he wants to get rid of Mordechai, that's exactly how he's planning my own demise. 
because Mordechai is much as I don't like him, he's a Jew. I don't, I don't have any great love for Jews, but still, he did save me. And so, Achashverosh plans this out to see how Haman will respond. And then he plans to shift it back onto Mordechai. And what does Haman say? Haman thinking this is about himself, and Achashverosh realizing very well that he's thinking about himself, he's putting himself in the position to eliminate somebody. Achashverosh knows this. He is setting himself up, says the Imri Moshe, that he should be the one to be able, wearing those clothes, riding that horse, to get rid of Mordechai. And so the king says, you want to get rid of Mordechai? He says, he does want to kill me. He does want to rub people out. And having said this, Haman's downfall is already fully cast. And so the king will respond and he'll say to him, really? Is that what you think should be done to a person who I wish to honor? Excellent. Why don't you get busy and do all of that to Mordechai? <laughs> and that we'll talk about in the next class, how that unfolds with Mordechai. But I want to I conclude with a beautiful spiritual lesson. We've talked about the notion that the Megillah speaks to us on multiple levels. And on the highest of levels, whenever it says the word Hamelech, it really alludes to Malka Shalelo. It alludes to the king of all kings the master of the world, the creator of heaven and earth. And if so, if so, then what Haman is asking for is to wear the clothes of the king means in the metaphor that a Yid, a Mordechai, is going to wear the clothes of God. What does that mean? Hmm. We're supposed to think we're God? Why would you want to wear levush ashalavosh bahamelech? Why would you want to ride the horse that the king rode upon? What does this mean in spiritual terminology? Right? Because this idea that, that it's Malkesh Elelem has to express itself in, in every detail of the Megillah. So here's how the Rebbe explained it at uh, one Purim Fabrengen. Here was 1957 to be exact. The Rebbe said like this. What is the sus asherach of Allah HaMelech? What does it mean, a horse? How, how would you explain that metaphorically, that God rode a horse? So what is a horse? A horse is, is a mechanism through which the king is able to be transported. The horse has got lots of koyach. He can gallop quickly. And so if the king wants to get from place A to place B, how does he do so? By means of the horse. The horse then is a means of transportation. It's a means of being able to bring things from one place to the next. Now God is everywhere. So it cannot be that God needs a horse to ride him. That makes no sense. But what would the metaphor then of a horse be in transporting or moving things from one place to the next. So the Rebbe says, we know that the concept of Torah is the vehicle that conveys to us the profoundest wisdom and will of God into our world. So then words are metaphorized as horse. And the horse then is the vehicle through which the deep secrets of Torah, God's essence, is conveyed to us. And this idea is actually articulated in Chesidus, it's talking about, the Rebbe talks about this in his commentary in the Pasuk, Ki tirkav al susecha markavesecha Yeshua, which is Habakkuk, Hanovi in the third chapter of his prophecies, speaking about God. So it's a metaphor, refer, refers to Torah. And what is, what is the crown? Haman asks for the crown. Then he changes his mind real quickly, but he asks for the crown. <laughs> what, is, what is he looking for? So he says, the crown represents the Ratzon Hashem, the will of God. 
We know that the crown and the Kabbalistic stickman, so the intelligence, Chachlom bin Adas is in the head, Chesed is in the right arm, Gvur is in the left arm, the torso represents Teferes, all the way down to Netzach, Hoyd, and Yisoyed, all the different Midas, the different attributes are, so to speak, drawn, drawn out on this, in this imagery. And then there's a crown. And the crown represents will, and the crown represents pleasure, which these are the ultimate mover and shaker. Why do people do things? Because they want to. And if they don't want to, they don't do it. So what would you try to do if you wanted somebody to do something? You have to get them to want to do it. What do the salespeople try to do to get you to want something? How did they get you to want something? Using every lie in the book, <laughs> whatever it takes. I once asked a marketing guy, I said, could you explain to me? I said, they're trying to sell houses. Right? The guy was selling his houses, he's building across the street. So there's a picture of a house, but really there's a picture of a very attractive lady on the thing. What does that have to do with the house? <laughs> is he selling a house with a lady? What is he? <laughs> Only attractive people what? Apply. <laughs> yeah, it says it's, it's like power of suggestion. So that's a, that's a, it puts, puts something of beauty there, and people say, oh, I'd like that. Well, this has nothing to do with the house. She comes with the house. What is he? Is he he's selling a wife in a house? Eh? But it's oh, subliminal messages where people buy things. They think they're buying something, but they're not buying it. It doesn't matter. You have to get them to want it. As they famously say that the salesperson and the rabbi are almost exactly the same. One little difference. The rabbi's job is to sell you something that you need, but you don't want. So it's really a hard sell. The salesperson sells you something that you want, but you don't need. It's a very easy sell. It should be the other way around. You don't need it. You buy the product and it sits on your shelf and it collects dust in your, the garage or in the basement. And then 10 years later, you sell it in the garage sale for about 5% of what you, what you bought it for. And you use it like three times. So what'd you buy it for? Ugh, I wanted that thing. I need that. You don't need it. You want it. But the things you need, like Yiddishkeit, who wants that? <laughs> so, so when we talk about this idea of wanting, really wanting is the most powerful influencer in the human psyche. But there's one thing more powerful than wanting. What's more powerful than wanting? Why people want. Why do people want this? Why do they have greed? Because they think it will make them happy. They think it will give them pleasure. Ultimately, everybody wants to be in a state of pleasure. And because he thinks it will make him happy and it will give him pleasure, that's why he wants it. So the salesperson tricked you into thinking it will give you pleasure. That's what you're missing in life, said the salesperson to the man who had more money than, than, than God. You need this beautiful new house. If you only had six more rooms in your house, then it would be a pleasure to live. The man says, right, yes. And his eyes glazed over, writes out the check and buys the big house and has six more rooms that he never walks into. And he's actually not any happier. And he has no pleasure in those rooms, except maybe once in a blue moon when he invites everybody over and he can show off his house. But he thought it would give him pleasure. So because he thought it would give him pleasure, therefore he wanted it. And because he wanted it, therefore he did it. So the highest mover and shaker of all is pleasure. That's the prime mover. It's pleasure. Okay, that's the Kesser. So the Rebbe says, the Kesser Malchus Bereshay which this is the idea of the Kesar Malchus of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's not speaking about the Giluyim, the outer layers of divinity. This is speaking of the essence of God Himself. How could an Hashama imagine that it will be able to reach the delight of Hashem Himself? And the Rebbe says clearly, the answer is that Hashem cherishes a Yid so much that a Yid can reach the deepest levels 
of the divine persona. He can connect to the highest level of Hashem's pleasure. And Hashem's delight in Tainug is within each and every single youth. And you can wear that crown because Hashem does take pleasure in you. And Hashem does delight in what we do. That's His pleasure. And it's only that we have to therefore know that because what Hashem delights in is actually what we're able to reach and what Hashem wants is actually what we're able to accomplish if we only want. And we even get the horse that the king rode on. Hashem took these letters of Torah, the, the metaphors of Torah, and through it conveyed the deepest and profoundest secrets. So what should we do? Get on the horse. And when you learn Torah, and when you live your life to what Hashem wants, in a Torah way, then that is a vehicle that takes you to the highest of places, even to the crown that Haman was afraid to ask for in the end. Even that, a Yid is able to receive. And the Rebbe doesn't say this, but I'm just thinking, really and truly, by Matan Torah, we did get two crowns. Fanasav and Nishma. Why? Because we were ready first and foremost to obey what Hashem said and then we're ready to learn the Torah. That's your horses. That's your steeds. And when we did that, we could get the crown. So this is being offered to each and every one of us. Of course, Haman has his machination and his ideas and his designs, which Baruch Hashem was great at, at saved the day for us. And that was all he was that horse. It's been given to you. That Hashem gave you his Torah. Ride the Torah. Use the Torah. Develop through the Torah. Use the mitzvahs and the Yid can reach the highest levels to the point that he's even able to accomplish Keser Malchus B'Roshay, the royal crown of Hashem, can be upon him. And we know Tzadikim Daimelubaydan, Tzadikim are metaphorized as their creator. And it says the Mashiach will come, Asid, that the Malachim will say Kaddish before Tzadikim, the way they say Kaddish before our Kaddish Baruch So all of this, in Hashem, hopefully will be fulfilled in the most real way, in the most actual way, with the coming of Mashiach. And Purim in the Beis HaMikdash, Bimheira, Uviyameinu, Amen. 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 Thank you.